Yes, I mean, certainly uh, Dick's feedback with regards to Mark Bedeau, which I also passed on to you, this idea of uh, survival, i.e. not being eaten, eating and reproducing, being central to soft artificial life and just working a way to bridge the gap uh, from wet artificial life to soft artificial life seem to be a theme with regards to your discussions at Flint as well. But certainly as you're phrasing the, the problem now, it really is even it's even lower than that in terms of what they're trying to do at Flint and um, what, what your uh, aspirations are with regards to the EvoGrid. So I'm not sure, did you, then, did you then return to Smart Labs in the UK having been to Flint and... I, I can't remember. Um, here's what happened, and I'm, it's all getting muddled in my mind, but I did two parallel things. Going to Flint, at the same time, I wanted to go back into computing history, and you know, many of the listeners know that I have this collection called the DigiBarn Computer Museum, and I'm ever fascinated by the origins of, of computing, digital computing. So I went to Bletchley Park, and Bletchley Park in the United Kingdom just north of London is where the code breakers were in World War II. And it was not a small operation. It was 10,000 people on this estate that had been purchased by the army or, or by the secret, secret folks. And in the main house, they were there, and they built all these buildings. And in Bletchley Park, they built the code-breaking machinery, including the Colossus, which was secret. It was destroyed after the war and kind of lost to history. But in the last few years, a fellow named Tony Sale, from just a few photographs and a few diagrams and and people's memories, rebuilt the machine from scratch and using original parts. And you can see this working uh, on the open days at Bletchley Park. So Tony actually gave me a demo of the machine, and it it takes in these tapes at 30 miles an hour, these paper tapes, through a photo uh, receptor, and uh, runs through this data flow algorithm through these 2,500 vacuum tubes or valves and out onto a teleprinter. And it's, it could crack codes in hours from the, the Navy Lorentz codes, I believe they were. And it led to the success of D-Day and many other things. It, the, the, the Colossus was truly a Colossus in computing. People who had worked on it went on to the United States and to Manchester and other computing projects. So it was tremendously inspiring to see this world's fastest computer in the 1940s, special purpose computer. I then went uh, on a, the next trip was out to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, and on the history side of things, I had asked for and got permission to go to the archives of the Institute. And the archivist, very kind, uh, person brought out had assembled all the materials on the electronic computer project at the institute that started in just after the war and it concluded with the, the coming on of von Neumann's amazing machine in 1952 that was just the cat's whiskers of computing. It was the first machine in which you didn't have to spend a week patch cording in a custom configuration to run a 10-minute calculation, you it, you loaded instructions, and it read its own instructions, and it ran the program, and it referenced very fast memory on on uh, cathode ray tubes called Williams tubes. There were 40 of them. They look like uh, cylinders on a hot rod engine on this machine. The machine is in the Smithsonian, but it was built at the Institute, and it defined uh, every computer that you are on today pretty much as a von Neumann design. 
at its core. And I was able to go through not only the von Neumann computer project, but also one of the first large-scale scientific programs written for it by a fellow named Niels Baricelli, who decided, who appeared at the Institute in the spring of 1953. Uh, he was a self-funded sort of biologist come computer person. Of course, there weren't computer scientists in those days. This was really the first truly functional computer ever made. And he decided he was going to create a software that would show how biological mechanisms could exist and, and how the, the process of evolution could, could occur. And the program was called the Numerical Symbioorganisms. And I didn't know anything about this until I read George Dyson's book, Darwin Among the Machines, uh, where he talks about growing up around the Institute where his father is still a professor there and finding the remnants of this old machine and then learning the history later, learning about this first artificial life program by Baricelli which by August of 1953 had exhibited the traits that you'd see in Tierra, you know, 30 years later or so, which is strings are copying themselves, there's, there's natural selection going on, there are parasites emerging. And, Tom, the most amazing thing about looking through this material is when the archivist unrolled these blueprints, and it was called, you know, the Baricelli blueprints. But they're not blueprints in the way that you would normally expect, which shows schematics for designing a machine or something, these are actual camera shots of the front face of the cathode ray tubes, Williams tubes, where the memory, where the cache memory was stored. So there, there are lit pixels on the screen. So the memory of this machine was visible. It was lit spots on a television tube, on 40 television tubes. So what Baricelli did was somehow they took a camera and they took pictures of the CRTs while the program was running or maybe it was halted, and they could see the layout of the symbioorganisms on the fronts of these cathode ray tubes. So you're actually looking at the state of, of the software directly with your own eyes. And so they unrolled these blueprints, and I took pictures of them for my own records, of the very first artificial life a biologically inspired program ever written uh, right there, and I handled the um, punch card deck that, that actually loaded it into the machine and some of Baricelli's notes and his paper that was published in, in, in the summer of 53, and it was extremely inspiring. So by the time I got the chance to uh, meet with uh, uh, Freeman, we met with Freeman several times, uh, I was pretty primed because Freeman was around in the Institute knew all these people in those days. Before we move on from Vericelli, because I, I had the privilege of seeing some of your photos as well, and just to convey to the listeners, it is quintessentially artificial life. I mean, it's like Tierra on paper in terms of these uh, photos, and it's really very impressive. But I think the interesting question with regards to, to Baricelli's work is, what can we learn from it as contemporary artificial life simulators? What are your thoughts with regards to this, Bruce? Well, what we can learn and understand, this computer was a five-kilobyte uh, universe. Uh, despite its, its size and the heating that it put out, it was a 5K machine. And in 1953, first, first machine to run a start program, and 
to one of the first programs, one of the first two or three programs for it uh, is artificial life, and it generates all these properties. And then Baricelli writes uh, in, in his paper and some subsequent interviews that, of course, these things are just numbers, and they exhibit a certain complexity, but it never seems to go beyond that, and it sort of maximizes it. You know, and we need a richer environment, far, far richer, to get anything other than things that have the sense of being alive. And and that sort of also crystallized my idea for the EvoGrid that we're, again and again we're, we're hitting these plateaus of complexity that we don't know how to break through. And if Baricelli hit the plateau within two months of running on the von Neumann Institute machine, that would certainly set the pattern for the rest of us to keep hitting these plateaus. So it's it's a multi-decade quest to, now that I think we can look back and then understand how difficult it is, but understand what the limitations have been all along. But certainly, I mean, returning to this idea of the metaphilosophy and as we talk about Freeman Dyson in particular, I mean, this is very critical. But, I mean, what, what you see with regards to Baricelli is perhaps that Tom Ray, when he created Tierra, uh, didn't necessarily have Baricelli's work at his fingertips. He may have, who, who knows? Um, but I mean, I think in terms of like a progressive intellectual movement, it's, you know, it, it's staggering to think that these works exist out there in an ether. I mean, this is fundamentally your, your, um, uh, virtual world timeline as well. I mean, collecting together the history of artificial life is actually part of the problem in terms of understanding how we move it forward as a progressive intellectual movement. But I think the issues with regards to complexity, again, goes back to this idea that artificial life needs to be taught in a unified fashion. There needs to be, you know, a proper academic strain that is artificial life that is very different from, you know, other other fields in academia. And from this, from this kind of maturing uh, intellectual community, obviously the development will come. I mean, what you see with regards to Baricelli through to Tom Ray's Tierra is in fact a, a complete schism intellectually. Uh, and, you know, what we're doing here in terms of historically collecting these things is actually putting them side by side where they may not have historically ever been put side by side previously. I mean, I hope we will have Tom Ray on a future Bios Live to discuss this very point. But I think the issue with regards to the um, how much processor you need or how much underlying technology you need or these kind of questions as the complexity of the simulations have developed in artificial life, these metrics have changed dramatically. And I think the issue is that we need an underlying a science, an underlying understanding to what these changes mean in terms of broader complexity before we can answer the kind of questions about where these, you know, where these walls actually exist. I think what's interesting with regards to the Evo grid, which we seem to continuously be returning to here, Bruce, is this idea that in one sense you can run the Evo grid and create the simulation and see what happens, but there needs to be a lot of understanding and science and study that goes into the process in parallel in order to yield answers to the questions that means that we won't have these kind of glass ceilings in the future. Into beautifully here, Freeman Dyson, who I have been referring to in previous both podcasts, particularly because of his background in uh, global warming, particularly with regards to simulation. And somewhat ironically, he was interviewed for the New York Times on this very issue just before you met with him at some stage in your trip. But, I mean, talk a little bit about Freeman Dyson and what insight he brought to the Evo Grid. Well, interestingly enough, we had met 
a couple of people who knew Freeman uh, the night before, one particular gentleman, who kind of prepared me. We, we met them at the, um, the house, the, the guest house for the Institute. And he was saying, look, Freeman is a maverick. Freeman is um, he's an iconoclast. He's one of the great minds of our time. He's also very English, and I think, Tom, you understand the references. Certainly, of course. Um, and if you open your mouth and you say two words and he decides to take the conversation from there, you have to let him do it. From that point on, you just follow where he goes. And he was basically giving me a sort of a worst-case scenario or maybe best-case because Freeman's already figured all this out and thought this out. And having read his Origin of Life book, you know, both editions, the mid-'80s edition and the 1998 edition, I mean, in there, I mean, this understand this is a mathematician turned physicist who worked with Richard Feynman, unifying parts of quantum electrodynamics and you know stuff that I don't understand. He was also he was also on bomber command in World War Two. I yeah. mean, he's had a profound in terms of every aspect of of kind of intellectual discourse. I mean, whilst he wasn't at Bletchley Park, he was dealing with the information that they were getting from Bletchley Park fundamentally as well. Uh, I, I did mention to him during the first meeting that I'd just come from Bletchley Park, and he perked up. <laughs> Who has come to me just come from Bletchley Park after having seen the Colossus? I mean, this sounds like something 60 years ago. Um, you know, of course, he, he may never have seen Colossus. And very few people did the need to know. But, yeah, Freeman in the 50s and into the 60s, you know, because he was at the Institute for Advanced Study, and if, there are people who don't know about this institute. It's an amazing place. It was established uh, through the wealth of a New Jersey department store uh, couple that owned a chain that had sold themselves out to one of the other major stores, maybe Macy's, in September 1929, a month before the stock market crash. Um, took the wealth and wanted to do something significant for the state of New Jersey and, and was talked into establishing this institute by an impressive gentleman. And they built it next to Princeton, but it was an institute meant for pure study, no laboratory work, no students, no degree granting. Uh, and there was initial discussion of it doing doctoral degrees and they just never have done it. And it's a place where you go and you can have license to do crazy things, to do things that don't have practical application. You're away from the hustle and bustle of the cities. You have, If you're a professor, and there are only a couple dozen of them, you have a guaranteed salary for life. The Institute pays your mortgage on your house. And it's you, know, you have great meals and staff that serve your every need, and that's for, for uh, professors. You also have visitors that come, members and visitors. And I can't quite figure out what the difference Nobody seems to know what the difference is. Um, members and visitors that come and work with you from outside, and many of them are young people. String theory is a major uh, element at the Institute. There's string theorists at T all the time in a clump up in the corner of T. And there's T. There's T at 3 o'clock in the afternoon every day. Um, very English type of tradition of that your father would have... Would have very much so, yeah. As a young child, I was uh, raised at T, so I, I know right. it well. So... <laughs> So here you are, and here's Freeman. Uh, of course he's able, because he's at the Institute, because he's a professor, he's able to switch to biology at one point and say, I'm going to study the origins of life. So he came up with the, what he called the double origins of life theory, which is that life was 
you know, one bit and then another bit, you know, a cell and a replicator, and then somehow they got together, that life had to have started kind of at multiple points of complex objects that then later linked up. It couldn't have started as one machine. So uh, Freeman does this, and throughout his career he's able to take on multiple. He takes on nuclear disarmament, and he's part of that. He writes for the New York Review of Books. He writes books. Uh, an amazing gentleman. So here we are sitting in his office. So we, we meet him at tea. Uh, uh, Pete Hutt, who's my host and my entree, he's a professor at the Institute, he's an astrophysicist, he has his own department there, takes us in to tea to find Freeman. We have a, an appointment with him at four. And he's starting to rush toward the door because he realizes he's late. And Pete says, here they are. And, oh, good, I don't have to hurry. It would save you having to run, rush off. So he leads Galen and myself to his office. And we strike up, which is, I was very relieved for Galen to be there because we strike up conversation. She's such a good conversationalist um, about his passion for nuclear disarmament, about his passion for astronomy and what is he working on. And we talk for about 20 minutes about that. And then I find out that his wife, Inna, is from East Germany, so I talk about my life in Prague in the 90s and tell him some really good stories. And I thought, okay, he's probably a story person because we know that he goes to the play readings every month that are held institute play readings. And so that really kind of warmed the whole thing up very well. And then he turns to me and says, so, you know, this is the moment of that one fears. So... <laughs> why have you come to see me? <laughs> uh, so instead of being in, in you know, the deer in the headlights of stark raving terror, I just kind of casually launch into all of the collected ideas of the past several weeks um, that I've been traveling around, I've been collecting these ideas, and in fact, I had started a PhD in 1985 at the University of Southern California, which was the precursor idea to what I'm working on now, and I'm, I'm getting back to it after 24 years. And I thought he might be able to relate to that as he had, I guess, started, his, never had gotten his PhD at Cornell, but they admitted him as a professor. But I told him a bit of my history, and then I launched into the evil grid in its sort of more, most crisp form than I could get it at that time, which was about this complexity and rationing up and uh, prebiotic simulation. And after, I can't quite remember, I didn't record this conversation because I felt it was maybe a little bit intrusive. We were able Certainly. to record the second meeting because he had told us the New, York Times, the New York Times reporter had forgotten to bring his recorder. So I said, oh, well, can I record from this point on? So after about 15, 20 minutes of me babbling on uh, and having him completely... Uh, staring unblinking at me, and I'm thinking he's either thinking I'm a complete nutter trying to figure out how to get us out of the office as quickly as possible, uh, or something's going on. And I stopped in some, some crescendo thought of some kind, and he said, oh, delightful. I thought, oh, my goodness. I said, delightful. Is that the same as mad because a British academic at UCL had declared me mad? And then he little cocked his head a bit, and he said, Mad is not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> I thought, there you are. That's the English, right? That is the English. Mad means 
what an outlandish idea. I wish I could work on it and not risk my entire career, but you're lucky to uh, take a stab at such a, a, you know, an interesting thing, but you're mad anyway. Uh, there's a bit of envy in mad, and there's a bit of criticism, but a bit of uh, wish I could be working on this and I've got this dull job. So that's what I got from Freeman's comment. And then um, he stopped, and, and I think of, it may be age, but it probably is the way he works. He stopped, and of course, I was luckily smart enough, and maybe through Galen's guidance, to let him think. And he would stop and think and ask a question, and I would answer it. And he would ask another question, and I would answer it. And then he said, well, he, he actually got up, and he said, can you add me to your email list, please? I thought, okay, that's it. He's. I was going to ask him if he would advise the project. He just said he wants to be able to see materials from this. Um, I said, we've got some early, early demos on the computer and some funny movies. Uh, and Galen said, we're thinking of coming back next week. And he reached over for his address book and said, oh, wonderful. Let me put you in the schedule. And we thought, oh, my goodness, he wants to see us again. We're not just another couple with the funny colored hair, uh, more in Galen's terms. So he put us in for Thursday of the next week, and he said, oh, I have to see you then because I'm leaving for Kazakhstan on Saturday, you know, to watch my daughter, you know, maybe go into space. And I said, you know, in order to get in touch with you, uh, to George, I emailed, I emailed Esther, and she gave me George's email address, and she said, hello, because we've known her for years. And I said, would you say hello to Charles, and this is Charles Simonier, who is actually the, was the space uh, tourist preparing. Uh, Esther was the backup crew in case uh, Charles got the sniffles that morning, she would climb on the rocket. Uh, she was the backup crew. And um, George had been in touch with me and said, basically, come by and see you. Don't, don't, you know, don't do any elaborate sort of setup or anything. Um, and they were all turning out going to Russia, go to going to Kazakhstan to watch this launch, as they all did. And it turns out that Charles is the head trustee for the Institute for Advanced Study. So I think the fact that I, I knew both of his, of his, two of his six children, uh, enough on speaking terms, and I also have Charles, uh, Simonia has been involved in the Digibarn Alto History Project. And, and he also sponsored uh, Dawkins for many years at Oxford. And if you looked out Freeman's office window in on the Bloomberg Hall and you look straight across, there's the Charles Simony Building uh, Mathematics Hall. So definitely <laughs> And you look the other way and there's Pete Hutt across in Building D. <laughs> um, and then the T on the, on the right. I mean, it's quite a... Uh, so the Institute for Advanced Study, the the current idea is that somehow, and I can't really divulge how because it's in a proposal that I'll Certainly. be working with uh, Pete and other people at the Institute somehow on the EVO grid. 